American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. History for jerks. History, history for jerks. Samantha, that's a hickey. Welcome to another episode of American, American I'm Amy. And I am a narcoleptic. A narcoleptic? Oh, I see. It's our dogs a narcoleptic. Our dogs the one that's snoring sawing over there. Sawing logs. I'm sawing logs. This is our new podcast. No, we're not. Sleep time. No, that's not American Sleep Times. There's already is podcast. So like we that. will talk really slowly. All right, what? Put you to sleep. Tonight we are talking we about already. 1966. Yeah, so this American Timelines podcast puts you through all the times of timelines, tells you what's happening. There's crazy stuff and weird stuff, and Amy likes to focus on awful, horrible moments that make everybody sad and make your stomach hurt and rapes and stuff. No, while I talk about hockey. Anyway, that's our. Me this is a bit. hockey slash murder podcast, basically. No, but this it's is not. a Perry Saturn based podcast. Uh, this is a. I would refuse to do it if it was a hockey slash. Hockey slash Perry Saturn slash murder. No, podcast. I would not. It's a true crime slash Perry Saturn biography podcast. Okay. All about the life and times of Perry Saturn, the wrestler. So we are talking about 1966. Yeah, we left off. But at the end of 1966. Well, sort of the end. The last bit we we got to October. We're November, December. So. Yeah, we're starting on November. So yeah, we got only two more months. We can do it. And there's not a up. lot. I don't have <clears throat> much to. <coughs> Jesus Christ! Sorry, I just had an attack of some sort. You have a pube in your throat. I had a hop slam in my throat. If you oh, know what I mean? Oh God! Not again. This is my second hop slam of the evening. Okay. So it should get interesting if you know what I mean. These are ten percent beers, so. I cannot be held accountable for anything I say or that's, do on this podcast. That's kind of normal. That is a legal. I've, I've been told by my lawyer to say that on every podcast. Mm-hmm. I can't be held responsible for anything that happens on this podcast. I can't be sued for copyright infringement because I said that and I'm drinking hop time. So that that's absolves it. me of all wrongdoing. Does it absolve me by by effect from absolving you? or The History for Jerks has no responsibility if anybody listens to our <laughs> podcast and is is uh, inclined to do something horrible, it's not our fault. Okay. All okay. right. So let's start. November 2nd, mm-hmm. 1966. I understand you have something right, right up top. Oh, yes. Um, and that's... <coughs> sorry. Oh. That's right where we're starting because that is the day... Uh, November 2nd, 1966, is mm-hmm. the same day that the great David Schwimmer was born. And while David Schwimmer was born, something unusual happened, right? Well, you have to tell us? I'm going to talk about um, serial killer William Archard. Serial killer William Archard. So we're going to jump right into the beginning with some murdering. If you didn't yes. get enough murder last episode, more murder for you. That's right. Some of you like murders. 
So he was born in 1912. Oh, boy, that's a long time ago. Yes. And he had always wanted to be a doctor, but he didn't have this opportunity. So he spent some time instead. He didn't have this opportunity? He didn't have the opportunity to become a doctor. That opportunity. So he, he spent some time during the early 1940s working as an orderly in a state mental hospital. Now, would he be classified as a disorderly or an orderly? I, I'm pretty sure he was just an orderly. Because a disorderly would be if he was a fat boy. Right. He wasn't. Okay. Okay. So he was 17 when he started working there in, okay. in Florida. That's a young time to start working as a disorderly. Or orderly, sorry. All right. And in this place, insulin shock therapy was common. Insulin shock therapy? Yes. I've heard of shock therapy, and this I've heard was, of insulin therapy. Yes, insulin shock therapy. Can you... I don't know. I, it's That's all you know about it? Yep. And he learned what happens in an insulin overdose. Oh. And it was sweating, heavy breathing, salivating, and then convulsions. Oh, no. Um, so it, then in 1950, right. he was sentenced to five years probation after he pled guilty to illegal possession of morphine. Oh, so he was stealing the morphine from his job most likely well no you yeah maybe but anyway where were you gonna say i was gonna say you said no i know could you get it on the street well if just having it without a prescription i guess is, is yeah so he must have so, taken it you're not supposed to take it home so the um but his probation was revoked after he committed a second <laughs> drug offense his probation was revoked? are you gonna sorry, make fun of me the sorry. whole time his fo- probation was revoked <laughs> sorry his probation was I know, you I can't, can't say, say it. it. His probation was revoked. Why? If he committed a second drug offense. Oh, so then he was sent to a minis- minimum security prison. Minimum security prison. And he escaped in 1951 from oh, that place. no. So he was recaptured. You and shouldn't then he escape. W- he was sent to high security San Quentin. Oh, San Quentin is high security. And he was then released on parole in 1953. Okay. Wow. Okay. So... Okay. The story so. begins when William contacted the police on July 24th, 1956. He contacted the police yes. himself on July 24th, 1956? Yes. Oh, the same day that the Steve Allen show returned to NBC, uh, and the number one song of the time was George Cates' Moon Glow and Theme from Picnic? Yes. That same time? He re- reported an alleged robbery at his home in Los Angeles. Okay. He said Sounds plausible. that two robbers had come to his home. Okay. Armed with guns and hypodermic syringes. A lot of times, which, robbers don't bring needles. Which they syringes. had used to inject both him and his current wife, which hurts his third wife. His third wife. His okay. Third wife. So you say third wife to, to so we all think, oh, anybody who's married three times well, has lower credibility. Listen, so okay. the they had hypodermic syringes that they had injected both of them in the butt. Oh. Is what he said. Okay. And that they made off with $500, but none of Zella's jewelry, which was on full view in her bedroom. That's an odd burgling. It doesn't add up. At the scene of the crime, the police initially found two puncture wounds in Zella's buttocks. Oh. um, But none in Williams. And Zella was... Oh, so his buttocks was puncture-free. Yes. And Zella was dizzy, but not comatose when the police arrived. Okay. And she did corroborate her husband's statement about the robbers, but she never saw them because they put a pillowcase over her head. Ooh. So after the police left, she gradually lapsed into a coma and had convulsions, and then she died the next day without regaining consciousness. Oh, no. Poor lady. During a search of the house, 
and surroundings, the police right. found a hypodermic needle in a bathroom drawer and a half-used vial of long-acting insulin in a nearby field. Oh. So huh. the um, investigating police officer in Los Angeles. <laughs> now, you, you threw that page on the floor, and right next to, right next to, you were touching it with that paper as a wastebasket. You could have just I'll put it just, right there. I'll put it. I, I didn't know, even just, know the wastebasket was there. It's just comedy to me. All so, right. Anyway, so nearby, there was insulin, and you already said, I'm picking up clues now. I okay. learned it, that you said he's figured out how to put somebody into a shock of Okay, so the investigating police officer, Sergeant Harry Andre, told the coroner about the insulin vial. Harry Andre, y'all. But there was no poisonous substances were found in Zella's body, though, and there was at the time no measure, no method of measuring insulin available. Oh, they didn't, they had no way to do that. Yes. So you couldn't find the chemicals either. So he had no evidence that she had died from insulin poisoning. Okay. Her death was officially attributed to bronchopneumonia. But suspicion remained, at least in Sergeant Andre's mind, that she might have been murdered. Yeah, it sounds to me like it was murder. So then the second death to come to attention of the authorities was that of Juanita, William's fifth wife. Oh, wait. Which one was this? Third. This is the lady who was his third. So he got married and then divorced and, married, and then and married, married again. again. Yes. So this is years down the road. Yes. Time has passed. This is no yes. longer 1956. Well, so Steve Allen's on TV. She and William had lived in <coughs> Nevada, Las Vegas, Nevada. Las Vegas, Nevada, who now has an NFL team. And where William had gone to live soonly, soon after Zella's death. Soonly. Soonly after Zella's he death. Soonly went there. I can't talk today. That's okay. Juanita, I never talk. Juanita was discovered in a coma on March 12th, 1958. Wait, she was discovered in a coma the same day that Pat Boone started on I've Got a Secret? On CBS mm-hmm. and Father Knows Best and Wagon Trail or on NBC, the same time, the number one song on the Billboard chart that everybody was listening to, probably as she was slipping into this coma, she was listening to Elvis Presley's Don't I. Hello? Don't. Don't I what? Don't. Elvis Presley Don't. Oh. Is the number one song. Sorry. Is that right? Don't. Okay. Do you remember that song? Uh, also. I think so. Uh. At the same time as uh, hello, Playboy Playmate Deborah Jensen was born. Playboy Playmate. Playboy Playmate. <laughs> We're just going to make fun of each other's talking the whole also, time. Also, basketball player James Wilkes was being born at that same time. Okay, yes. So All she was, was in happening. a coma. Yeah. And that was only two days after she and William had married. Oh. And less than two years after Zella's death in Los Angeles. I guess just might as well just get the murder right away. If you're going to get married and then murder them, might as well. Mm-hmm. So... Like Zella, Juanita was taken to the hospital but died only a few hours after being found and without regaining consciousness. Now people are going to start wondering about this fella. And the doctors at first attributed the coma to a self-administered barbiturate overdose. Barbiturate. But that was not confirmed by blood analysis and because the measuring of barbiturates was too difficult to do routinely. Right. It's, it's pronounced analysis. The 60s. She also had a low blood sugar, for which there was no obvious medical explanation. In the light of what subsequently emerged, Juanita's coma was almost certainly due to insulin, but once again, the crucial test was not done. Yeah. So William Archard's name... But they didn't have... But they have the test now? No. They still wasn't done. Well, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Okay. 
William Archer's name cropped up again just over a year later My when goodness. having married for the sixth time. Six times. His new wife's ex-husband, Frank Stewart. Frank Stewart is going to crack this case, y'all. Died in a Nevada hospital on March 17th, 1960. Oh, Frank Stewart did? That's on St. Patrick's Day. Yes. You can't kill Frank Stewart on Frank Frank Patrick's Spank Patrick's, Spank Patrick's <laughs> Hello? Day. Hello? Are you having you a stroke? <laughs> I think I am. Okay. Anyway. So, this is the what? The seventh? What? Sixth, sixth? Sixth. Sixth. Okay. So, Frank had been taken um, to the hospital after having allegedly slipped on a banana skin in a toilet in the airport while he was on a business trip with William and had struck his head as he fell. Slipped on a banana peel. It was hilarious. Right. He, yeah, officer, he slipped on a banana peel. It was hilarious. And then that, the rest of the stuff happened. That's what he said. Yep. Frank never regained consciousness. Yeah. William's account of Frank's accident was accepted. Okay. Despite yeah. the authority's suspicion. Makes sense. No You've murdered a couple people already. Found. All of your wives mysteriously die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you happen to be with this guy, and he just slipped on a banana peel. Yeah, checks out. Yep. Checks out. So because both Juanita and Frank's deaths had occurred in another state and were outside Sergeant Andre's jurisdiction, ah. there was little he could do about them. Yes. But he reported his suspicions about William to the Nevada police authorities. But so he didn't know about them. Yeah. He just couldn't do anything. Right. But uh, despite the strong circumstantial evidence pointing to wrongdoing, they were unable to find sufficient evidence to implicate William in Frank's death. Yeah, sometimes you can't find evidence. So once again, as no one had measured Frank's blood glucose level while he was unconscious, the authorities never considered the possibility of insulin overdose. Yeah, it's not something you would think about. No. I don't think it's not. Nobody would think that's a murder thing. William's next... The, his name next came to Sergeant Andre's attention a year and a half later Uh-oh. when he read a newspaper account of Bernie Kirk Archard, William's nephew, who died following a hit-and-run accident in Nevada. Oh, boy. William had taken his nephew to the hospital on August 21st, 1961 in Wait. a semi-comatose state. Wait, he took his nephew to the hospital in a semi-comatose state the same day that while on the radio, while he was doing this, Bobby Lewis tossing and turning was probably on. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, when Francisco Goya's 1812 portrait of the Duke of Wellington was stolen from the National Gallery in London by thieves who had hidden inside the museum before it closed and waited for the alarm system to be turned off. Yes. That same day? Yep. The same day that Glenn Miller time was on CBS? Yes. Oh, my gosh. So he was semi-comatose when he took him to... Yeah. Okay. While that song was on. He was complaining of a sore hip and scalp, and on examination, the pupil of one eye was dilated, which is common after a head injury, but it could have also been caused by William putting atropine in one of Bernie's eyes to produce inequality in pupil size to feign a head injury. Mm, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, I know. Atropine... Take notes, people. Atropine in one eye to feign a head injury. And atropine is a muscle relaxant. A muscle relaxant, and you can get it over the counter, or I, that, I probably not. I now we sh- really anymore. shouldn't be teaching people how to feign yes. head injuries. So the only laboratory abnormality recorded in Bernie's clinical notes was a low glucose concentration in his cerebrospinal fluid. Oh. So this had now they got to start putting these clues together. I would this think. had been collected as part of the investigation of his coma. The pathologist who conducted Bernie's autopsy was aware of Kenneth Bartlow case and later said that he had considered the possibility that Bernie's coma was due to insulin, but he had no means of proving it since any insulin would long since have gone. 
Bernie's death was put down to the car accident that had brought him into the hospital. So they think he died in a car accident. Okay. Now, Sergeant Andre then gave Williams' record to Sergeant White of Los Angeles Homicide Squad. Okay. Sergeant White had been charged with investigating fatal road accidents in a large area surrounding the city. Yeah. And his involvement in this case played a crucial role in unraveling the story. Okay. He became further involved after he had investigated and disproved a fraudulent claim by William for damages following a road accident he said he had been involved with, but which had been deliberately staged by him in collusion with others, including huh. his then-current wife, Stella Morin. Well, which wife is that? Eight, I think. Whoa, that's hard to keep but track. But she was, no, she's his current girlfriend. Sorry, he must not be wife. good looking. She was fortunate enough never to marry him. He keeps getting his latest. There was, however, still no definite evidence linking William with the deaths of Frank, Bernie, Zella, or Juanita, though suspicion yes. ran high. Well, it's got to run high at this point. Everybody yep. this guy's related to. But and what's the motive? Like, some are his wives, some are his nephews, some are ex-lovers. Right. of. So things came to a climax when William's seventh wife, a romantic novelist called Mary Brinker Arden. Mary Brinker Arden? Yes, she died on November 2nd, 1966. 18 well, that's months. The, that's the day we're talking about. This is where we are. That's the day David Schwimmer was born. Right. The day. We already uh, said that. Yeah, but the we day. We said all that. Yeah, <laughs> I only said that one. But that's also like she died also the same day that on uh, Beverly Hillbillies, Granny Soap Making sends noxious smoke into the air, which gets the attention of Smog Commissioner Tinsley. Mm-hmm. And then Jed decides to run for office. <laughs> yes. <laughs> With his wiener out. Also, no. that's the day the Cuban Adjustment Act comes into force allowing 123,000 Cubans the opportunity to apply for permanent residence in the United States. So she died, and it was, this was 18 months after her wedding. Okay. And allegedly it was a result of head injuries sustained in a road traffic accident. Oh, another, Jesus, all the same. So Lieutenant White, as he had now become, mm-hmm. was assigned the job of investigating Mary's death, which was far from straightforward. William and Mary had lived together for about a year after their marriage, but parted when she became bankrupt. William then returned to live with his sixth wife, Gladys. After her car accident on October 28th, Mary got in touch with William, who, after she had returned home from the hospital, went to her house to console her. Two days later, Mary was admitted to the hospital in a coma, and she died the next day without recovering consciousness. I'm I'm really confused there by which who that is. Mary, Which person? Mary. Well, I know Mary. The novelist. The novelist. That was the most recent one. But he left her and went to stay with somebody else, and then, then one of the other wives back. started consoling her? No, no. He left her to stay with somebody else. Yeah. And then he came back to her. Yeah, but you said one of the other wives was consoling another wife. No, Somewhere I didn't say that. Okay, that's what I thought. All right, so blood tests showed she had a very low blood glucose level and that some barbiturates were present. Okay, same kind of stuff. So another suspected murder by insulin, no hard evidence. Um, there was weird things though with the Lieutenant White. He did not appear to have known that six years earlier in 1960, uh-huh. this a new test method had been invented uh, to measure insulin right. in the blood. He was not aware of this. And it was called ra- radio immunoassay, I think, something like that. It's a. That doesn't so, sound right, but I'll go with you. It. Um, anyway, let me. Figure out. So he, Lieutenant White, established contact with Dr. Edward Arquila, who was the professor of pathology at the University of California, Los Angeles Medical Center. Okay. By coincidence, Dr. Arquila had himself invented a technique for measuring insulin in the blood and tissues using antibodies. Um, 
at the police department's request, Dr. Akila applied an immunohistological technique using his own insulin anti-serum to thin slices of Bernie's brain that had been collected at post-mortem and preserved. Yikes. So anyway, he does these tests, and yep. he finds out that there's insulin, high levels. Yes. Extremely high levels. So although Archard was not specifically charged with the offenses, the court allowed evidence to be heard to show common plan or scheme that William had used insulin to murder Juanita, his fifth wife, the ex-husband, Frank Stewart, of his sixth wife, and a friend, William Jones. This is a serial killer, right? Yes. So this decision was made after Dorothea, who was a nurse and still alive, had told the police about the death of William Jones. Jones, this is another person that he killed, yeah. had been involved in a money-making scam with William. Oh. And William killed him by an insulin injection in 1947. Oh, way back. Jones had apparently agreed to let William inject him with insulin as a cover-up for some of their illegal activities, which involved faking unconsciousness due to a head injury that was supposedly caused by a motoring accident. What? Not knowing or appreciating the consequences of what he was doing. Sure, yeah, he had no idea he was going to die. Right. He thought it would just cover it, yeah. Huh. So, um, whoa, messed up, man. Psychologists um, testified yeah. at the trial and um, thought maybe he had schizophrenia. Uh, he had waived his right to trial by jury. He was found guilty by the presiding judge on three counts of first degree murder for the deaths of Zella, Bernie, and Mary. On oh. March 6, 1968, he was sentenced to death in the gas chamber of San Quentin State Prison. Later, in 1970, the California State Supreme Court confirmed the conviction. And they also, so then death penalties gets yeah. thrown out. Uh -huh. Then he gets on life, and then the death penalty comes back, and then he goes back. But then he died anyways at the age of 65 from a well, heart you, attack. Did you say Wednesday, March 6, 1968? Yeah, I did. Oh, the same day as... <laughs> That 26 passengers on a bus in North Sumatra in Indonesia were killed and 25 more injured when the bus's brakes failed and sent the vehicle into the path of an oncoming train. Jeez, that's morbid, honey. Yeah, and the same, <laughs> and the same day that the 84th and final episode of Lost in Space yes. was on? Yes, yes. Wow. So, anyway, William appears to have been motivated by greed throughout his criminal career. Greed is the motivation. Zella had so been getting, comparatively yeah, well off when he married her. Okay, that's And he money. stood to gain from her death. Yeah. Juanita left an estate worth $40,000, but okay. unbeknownst to William, she had altered her will shortly before she died, so okay. he got none of it anyway. And Mary was a successful author in her own right, and as her next of kin, William stood to inherit her estate, yeah. despite her bankruptcy, whatever yeah. that was going to be. She's the one he says bankrupt, okay. William's nephew, Bernie, had been awarded $8,000 in compensation for the death of his father, and William had been named his trustee. Oh, we got to get that money. Yes. After Bernie's death, none of that money could be accounted for. Okay. And Frank Stewart had taken out $80,000 worth of accident insurance payable to William's aged mother and his former wife, Gladys, in the event of his death whilst on his business trip with William. Oh. So the insurance company refused to pay out that policy. They Not, were smart. Yep. They weren't convinced the death was an accident. So once again, William left the scene empty-handed. And that is the story of William Archard. And I got a lot, most of this from the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine. Really? Yep. You just were perusing it? And that's what and you came up with came that? up with that. You just were reading that came journal? Came up with that little tidbit. Wow. That's a lot of stuff. And then Saturday, November 5th, 1966... The Monkey's Last Train to Clarksville takes over the number one spot. And then Tuesday, November 8th, 1966, 
former Massachusetts Attorney General Edward Brooke becomes the first African-American elected to the United States Senate since Reconstruction. Yes, that's awesome. And then, uh, so, yeah, so that's, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, former Attorney General Edward Brooke. In September 2002, he was diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh. A man and assumed a national role in raising awareness of the disease among men. Wow. On June 23rd. I don't think men had breasts. Yeah. No, they have breast cancer. I mean, they they have. Yeah, they're just not filled with. I thought they just had. No, men can get breast cancer. Oh, I didn't know And that. then on June 23, 2004, President George W. Bush awarded Brooke the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And now to be joined by Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh. Limbaugh. Oh the God. same award that Rush Limbaugh did you see that? Did you see that cartoon where like Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King and they're all chucking their Presidential Medal of Freedom in a box no. in heaven? Like they're all pissed and yeah. chucking them in there because it doesn't mean shit anymore. That same year, he received the Jeremy Nicholson Negro Achievement Award, acknowledging his outstanding contributions to the African American community, which also Rush Limbaugh has won. Oh, you no, no, he's never no, I'm no. And then two days after his 90th birthday, Brooke was presented with a Congressional Gold Medal mm-hmm. on October 28, 2009. And on January 3rd, 2015, Brooke died at his home in Coral Gables, Florida at the age of 95. He was murdered. No, he was not murdered. He was not murdered. He was murdered by He was by 95. Death. He was buried at the Arlington National Cemetery. And then on that same day that he mm-hmm. uh, became the first African-American elected to the United States Senate, mm-hmm. actor Ronald Reagan, a yep. Republican, is elected governor of California. Yep. The election was a contest between incumbent Governor Pat Brown, the Democratic candidate, and actor Ronald Reagan. Pat Brown had been relatively popular uh, as a Democrat in, at that time, a Republican-leaning state. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it Reagan a Democrat at first? <clears throat> no, I don't think so. Oh. Brown's popularity began to sag amidst the civil disorders of the Watts riots and the early anti-Vietnam War discrimina- uh, demonstrations at UC Berkeley. Did we listen to those those recordings of Reagan talking about? Yeah, we listened a little bit. It was a it was a spoken word album. Yeah, yeah. that's right. It was about like like fear mongering. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yep. Same shit, different day. Anyway, Pat Brown's decision to seek a third term as governor after promising that he would not do that yeah. hurt his popularity and helped Reagan. Welcome. Um, that brings us to Wednesday, November 9th, 1966, where Amy has a second story. Yes. Thanks to Brent Nelson's complaining. I do. It's a shorty. Okay. Um, It was the day that Paul McCartney died. Wait a minute. Paul McCartney's not dead. Well, he died. Is he? In 1966 and was replaced by a lookalike. Ooh. Wait, are you saying that Wednesday, November 9th, 1966, mm-hmm. Paul McCartney died mm-hmm. the same day that John Lennon of the Beatles first met Yoko Ono? Yes. He met her on this day at the Indica Gallery in London, Oh, where he her work was being featured in an exhibit sponsored by the dealer Robert Groovy Bob Fraser. Within two years, Lennon would divorce his wife of six years, Cynthia, and would marry Ono. That's right. So the same day you're saying yeah. he met Yoko, yeah. Paul McCartney died. How did he die? Well, it all began on October 12th, 1969. Oh, wait. It started three years later? Yes. This Yes. Oh, wait. How did he die three years later? Oh, you mean October 12th, 1969 when the Bill Cosby show was on? 
Or he played Chet Kincaid, a gym teacher at an inner city of Los Angeles high school. Did you say the Bill Cosby show? It was a Bill Cosby show where he played a guy named Chet oh, Kincaid, and then he a gym teacher. Yeah, and he was raping one of my children. And you can get it on Amazon Prime right now. I thought they got rid of, I thought he was canceled. Yeah. It's but still no, on there? there's an old show from the 60, late 60s with Bill Cosby called The Bill Cosby Show where he plays a gym teacher. Ugh. I started watching it, and it starts out with a joke where he's he's pretending his feet are talking to him while he's jogging and complaining about doing all the work. Mm, man. So, yeah, so on that day, when Russ Gibb, a DJ for Detroit's underground station, WKNRFM, WKNFRM, received a phone call by a man named Tom who claimed that some Beatle records contained hidden clues suggesting that Paul McCartney had actually died. Paul is dead. Paul so is dead. The evidence for the conspiracy revolves around the theory that Paul had been decapitated in an automobile wreck after Ooh. he left Abbey Road Studios in London where Beatles recorded their music. Oh, no. Paul had apparently left upset over an argument with the other Beatles, yeah. took his Aston Martin sports car, and perished in a horrible accident that killed him. Oh, no. This accident supposedly took place at 5 a.m. on November 9th, 1966, and was caused by a hitchhiker named Rita, who Paul had picked up along the road. Lovely Rita. Meet a maid. Mm -hmm. Is that who that's after? Probably. Oh, my gosh. Didn't know that. With Paul's death, however, a big problem arose. The Beatles were at the peak of their career. Oh, yeah. You can't have a guy die. And the loss of one of their members would mean the end of the show for them and the industry behind them. Yeah, they just got too big. They can't, they're too big to fail. That's right. Somebody had the idea of never revealing Paul's death and hiring an imposter in his place. That Somebody makes sense. who looked like him and could play music. Makes perfect sense. It's so, like what they did with the Ultimate Warrior in WWF. Is it? So they say. Or the two Darrens in Bewitched. Was there two Darrens? Yep. There really was two Darrens. There really was two Darrens. Well, in wrestling, it's the same guy, but they stopped. They had to stop doing taking steroids, so they got smaller. And oh, okay. It was a different guy, I think. Oh, okay. Um, so some sources claim the imposter was an actor named William Campbell, really? the winner of a Paul McCartney lookalike contest, and conveniently an orphan from Edinburgh. Oh. Of course, it didn't hurt to assume that Campbell could write the same types of songs as McCartney and just happened to have the same voice. So yeah. the arrival of an imposter in November 1966 then could have explained why the Beatles stopped touring that same year. Oh, it yeah, it has nothing easy. to do with the... the the Jesus, bigger than Jesus con, mm -hmm. con to spot a comment. fake McCartney performance on stage and started to grow mustaches. Oh, the face yeah, was they almost started identical. Disguising with beards it and disguises. mustaches. So this terrible secret generated in the remaining Beatles, John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr a strong sense of guilt and induced oh. them to insert many hints and clues yeah, in felt the bad. truth. Let's uh, to so, deal with our guilt. The only way to do that is to leave secret clues. So the Tom, this Tom guy yeah. that's calling says that he figured it out because uh, there was a, um, two weeks before his telephone call the publication of the Beatles' latest album, Abbey Road. Yes. The album cover shows the four Beatles walking a single file across the now famous crosswalk at Abbey Road. Right. This was thought to symbolize a funeral possession, procession. That makes sense. It's a, a perfect clue, a, a perfect guilt-canceling clue. clue. John Lennon was dressed in white, represents yeah. the church. Okay. White is traditional color of mourning in many Eastern cultures, too. Oh. Ringo, so dressed black in black, them. represented the undertaker. Oh. Paul was out of step with the other three Beatles, with his eyes closed and barefoot. In a number of societies, it appears that corpses are buried without their shoes. Yes. Furthermore, Paul held a cigarette in his right hand when everybody knew that the real Paul McCartney 
Left-handed. He only smoked with his left hand. George Harrison, last in line, was dressed in work clothes, and to many represented the grave digger. Yeah, he's the grave digger. Now, I thought John in the white is supposed to be like the pope or the preach, the preach, well, preacher, the, uh, priest. That's kind of the same thing as the church. Oh, the church. Okay. So on the street, there is also parked a Volkswagen Beetle yep. whose license plate shows an eerie message, LMW28IF. Oh, yeah. Interpreted to mean that Paul would 28, have been 28 fuck. if he had lived. Oh. The fact that Paul was actually 27 when Abbey Road was released doesn't seem to make lived. much difference because in Far Eastern societies, an individual's birth includes the time spent in the mother's womb. So Paul really would have been 28. Oh, he would have been 28. And the what Beatles had a fascination with the Far East at this time. Yeah, they did. What does LMW stand for? Uh, Left... Male wiener? <laughs> I don't know. Lick my wiener if I'm 28. Yep. And I'd be, you would only lick my wiener if I'm alive. So then this hysteria starts. Yes. In the pop world, the media, and there's all these clues in, found in previous Beatle records. So, yeah. first of all, the clue diggers looked at Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yeah. The first album the Beatles that recorded whole cover after. Looks like a funeral, right? Well, and it's the first album recorded after Paul's. Supposed death. Supposed death. So this was that was released on June first, nineteen sixty-seven, and it was om- among the most influential in music history. Yeah, that that I took a rock and roll history class in college, and they said that is still to this day. Of course, this was twenty years ago. I took that class. The most influential album in rock and roll history. It's amazing. Changed rock and roll. It's crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. So the cover shows the four Beatles dressed in band uniforms gathered around a bass drum bearing the album title and with a crowd of cutout people around them. Yep. It proved to be a goldmine for clue diggers. So, again, they, the spectators resembled the mourners at a funeral. Yep. And the flowers in front of them not only spelled the word Beatles, but also a set of yellow hyacinths formed the shape of a left-handed bass guitar, which was McCartney's oh, instrument. Oh, that was his instrument. Now, quick side note on the, um, the cover of Sgt. Pepper. Uh, I have a relative. On that cover. That's right, you do. Hunts Hall. Yep. A comedian from the Bowery Boys. He is on. He is in the back, uh, top right. And I found out from his son, who is my uncle, uh, why he got on there. And uh, he thought it would, uh, you know, it would, he would get a lot of royalties and pay because he had got, oh, screwed, right. he got screwed over a bunch of royalty yeah. deals before. Um and he was kicking himself when he got offered that, and so he he did that. But they, um, Leo Gorsi, his partner, they asked him first, and he was like, he wanted a bunch of money, and so they passed on him. and And Hunts did it for just two signed originally original signed albums of it. Like I want two signed copies. Oh, but I bet those are worth. Yep, and he lost them. <gasps> yeah, <laughs> they can't. No. They don't know what happened to him. Yeah. Uh, he had two originally Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band signed by the Beatles. Print Sergeant Pepper signed by the Beatles. We should look up how much that would be right now. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know how to do that. All right. Also, Paul had a right hand raised above his head, which supposedly in certain Far Eastern societies is a symbol of death. Oh. And while the other Beatles held bright golden band instruments, Paul held a black clarinet, another supposed symbol of mourning, maybe. Oh. A doll wore a striped Welcome to the Rolling Stones sweatshirt. 
on her leg, there is a small model car strongly resembling an Aston Martin that seemed to be heading toward the word stones, perhaps a hint of the accident. Oh. If you then, and this is this where it starts to get a little ridiculous. If you then held a flat mirror perpendicular to the center of the words Lonely Hearts appearing yeah. on the bass drum, a hidden message appeared, which is a direct reference to the supposed, supposed fatal crash that day. Really? In the open album jacket, the Beatles appear still in the Sgt. Pepper's uniforms, and McCartney wore an arm patch that read OPD, an abbreviation for officially pronounced dead. Oh, but are you sure it's not OPP? A right. preview of Naughty by Nature's song. It could be. This was also the first album in history that included the lyrics to the songs appeared appearing in the record, and they were published on the back cover, mm -hmm. along with a picture of the four Beatles in their outfits. Strangely, Paul is the only one turning his back to the camera, and also strange is the fact that George's thumb points to the opening lines of She's Leaving Home. Ooh. The lyric states, Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock as the day begins. Another reference to the day and time of Paul's fatal, fatal accident. Ooh. In another song of the album, A Day in the Life, John sings, he blew his mind out in a car. Blew and in another, in a car. In an, Good Morning, Good Morning, he starts by singing Nothing to Do to Save His Life. Mm. And was the title a play on words to mourning and mourning. Like, uh. And what about Lovely Rita? Was that in reference to the girl yeah. that causes death? Could, could be since it, it, in it McCartney sings took her home and nearly made it. Uh, yeah. More clues were also found in subsequent albums. The Magical Mystery Tour co cover showed the Beatles dressed in animal costumes. In the center was a black walrus, and in certain Scandinavian countries, a walrus is considered a harbinger of death. Ooh. Was the imposter dressed in the walrus skin? Apparently not for John Lennon sings in the album of the song titled I Am the Walrus. Here's another clue for y'all. The, the walrus, walrus it Paul. was Paul. Yeah. So... In a later Beatles release, um, which was titled simply The Beatles, but it became known as The White Album, Yeah. in a song titled Glass Onion, Lennon sings, well, here's another clue for you all, The Walrus Was Paul. Yeah, yeah. On the booklet included the magical in Magical Mystery Tour, the clues abound. Paul is shoeless in some pictures, is the only one to wear a black flower on his lapel while the others are red, yeah. has a hand above his head in various pictures, and even sits behind a sign stating, I was. Huh. Near the end of the song, Strawberry Fields Forever, upon careful listening, a faint voice stated something like, I buried Paul. You could also turn the Magical Mystery Tour album jacket upside down and look at its reflection in the mirror. The title, detailed as stars, became the digits to a phone number. The rumor further explained that if the number was dialed, the listener would get the truth details of Paul McCartney's death. Really? On the White Album, if you listen to a strange murmuring mm. following the song, I'm So Tired, yeah. you couldn't make out what it said, but... If you play the record backwards, the words became something like, Paul is dead now, miss him, miss him, miss him. Paul is dead, miss him. Yeah, I've heard that. It's a shame they don't have the technology yet to play. Backmasked stuff. Play like MP3s backwards. Can you? I don't know. Maybe you can. Nothing compared to the chilling revelations in number nine. Number nine. Number nine. nine. That's a great song. When, <laughs> when if you reverse that song, you can hear a voice saying, turn me on, dead man. And then the sound of a terrible collision. The sound yeah. of crackling flames and a voice screaming, let me out, let me out. That's, That's Paul. Creepy. That's creepy. I didn't, yeah, I, you can listen to that on YouTube, too. Yeah. If you search on YouTube that Paul McCartney is dead, dead you'll you hear all this. You can be a hero. And so it seems unimaginable that the American public would believe such a rumor, but you got to remember this is the same generation that was JFK's assassination, and they all yeah. had... 
Also, a lot of conspiracy theories. The Warren Commission hiding it and everything like that. And so their rumors became so noisy that Paul McCartney himself had to reassure his fans that he was still alive. In an exclusive interview with Life magazine, which was on November 7th, 1969, yeah. he stated, paraphrasing Mark Twain, that rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. However, if I was dead, I'm sure I'd be the last to know. He also offered a number of explanations for the mysterious clues. This is what he said. The OPD patch he wore on Sergeant Pepper's actually meant Ontario Police Department. He wore a black flower and magical mystery tour because they had run out of red ones. It was John wearing the walrus outfit, and on Abbey Road, he was barefoot only because it was a hot day. Ah. Other clues had similar simple explanations. John did not say, I bury Paul at the end of Strawberry Fields, but as can be clearly heard now in a clearer take in the song on Anthology 3, he says, cranberry sauce. Cranberry sauce, yeah. However, while it is true that most clues can be easily attributed to coincidence and wishful thinking, there are little things that must have been put there by the Beatles for some purpose, like the various walrus claims, the backward messages, and some other hints in the album covers. It may just be, as John Lennon said, that they only wanted to have a laugh at the expense of those critics reading cryptic messages and everything they did. Yeah, they probably just wanted to screw with people Mm -hmm. after a while. But... um, what is sadly true is the fact that Charles Manson and his family also believed there were hidden messages in the Beatles songs, and they yeah. thought it was about Armageddon. And right. he, we'll talk about them more in 1969. Um, according to R. Gary Patterson, author of The Well-Researched The Walrus Was Paul, perhaps the Beatles became concerned that if they admitted to planting clues, they could very well be charged in some sort of conspiracy that would indirectly link them to the Manson murders. Perhaps it would be much safer to give up the hoax and deny it ever happened. This way, the Beatles would be safe from any lawsuit implicating the band members. So if they... Mm. Does that make sense? I guess. So in a lighter vein, however, the rumor also helped to further boost the sale of the Beatles catalog and inspired a lot of cartoons and comedy skits like the ones that presented on the Ed Sullivan Show on February 23rd, 1970. And it had two angels in heaven and one of the the first angel says, is there any truth to the rumor that Paul McCartney is still alive? And the second angel says, I doubt it. Where do you think we got those groovy harp arrangements? Ah. And I got okay. this um, article was from Skeptical Inquirer magazine. Now, I was looking at, I think, the Beatles Bible. And the only thing I think you you missed was um, they were saying that this new guy that replaced Paul was Billy Shears. Oh, from and the song. Like, that was his original yeah. name. That's why they say, they're lovely. Welcome, Billy, Billy Shears. Shears. And then extreme theorists have pointed to discrepancies in older photos of Paul and more recent photos claiming that details like chin shape and the placement of his ears are dead giveaways. That they're, that they're that different. It's a different. What if, it's, what if it's true? Could you imagine? Like, just for a second. Think to yourself that that really is true, that we found out that really was true. Wouldn't that blow your mind a little bit? Well, yeah. And how would you know? Like, I mean, how if, would you, if you found out? out, I don't know. Like if, if, somebody, Paul, if Paul admitted it, yeah. like right towards the end. Yeah, if he was dying I'm a, or I'm something. I'm actually Billy Shears, and they're what Paul McCartney actually died years yeah. ago. Wouldn't that be crazy? Honey, yeah. honey, that would be crazy. It would be exciting. But the good thing is none of it matters because we're all just living in the Matrix. We're all going to die soon anyway. We're all going to die. All right. This is the most uplifting podcast in town. Welcome to the American Timelines. You're all going to (laughs) die. 
And then we got, that brings us to, let's go on to November, Sunday, November 27th, 1966. The Washington Redskins defeat the New York Giants 72-41 to in the highest scoring game in National Football League history. Okay. That's right. And the Redskins even kicked a field goal with seven seconds left in the game, even though they were winning uh, by six or 69. Of, they, were, they were leading by 28 points. Jeez, that's I mean, not rubbing salt next, in yeah, a wound. Yeah, uh, the Giants could have run out the clock in their previous possession, but quarterback Tom Kennedy threw the ball out of bounds on fourth down, thinking it was only third down. With Redskins fans, uh, the Giants quarterback was becoming the mo- most popular Kennedy to hit Washington in the last couple of years. Wait, sorry, I cut that last sentence. After the game, reporters asked the coach of the Redskins about his decision to kick the field goal. I I cut out his first name, Graham. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, were you trying to break the single s- s- game scoring record of 70 points set by the Rams against Baltimore 16 years earlier? earlier? Hell no, Graham said. I didn't know anything about records. I wanted Gogolak to try a field goal. He hasn't had a chance all day, and he had missed two field goals against Cleveland last week. I'm not trying to run up the score on anybody. He just needs to practice his oh. goddamn field goals. So that's oh. all he said. Anyway, and then on November, uh, Monday, November 28, 1966, mm-hmm. this was Truman Capote's famous black and white ball. Oh, I don't Have know about that. Have you ever heard of that. this? Mm-mm. So I looked at this whole article, and I'm not going to go through much of it, but um, yeah. guys, it was just. Ridiculous. Dumb. It was uh, he Truman Capote held the party of the century held in New York City. It's a really really famous party. And you yeah. can see pictures of it online everywhere. Um, it was in in honor of the Washington Post publisher Catherine Graham. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a drizzly night in November of 1966. 540 of Truman Capote's dearest and nearest and dearest friends turned out. Uh, on what the writer insisted on calling his little masked ball for Kay Graham and all my friends. The evening survives on film and the recollections of the guests who are still alive 50 years later. It was a party of a kind. It was a party of a kind we are unlikely to see again, given that it allowed for a then unheard of, but now more common coming together of disparate social spheres. So it was sort of like, Mm-hmm. The regular people and the super celebrities mm-hmm. and the writing world and the all film together. world and everything all in one place. Um, you never see a party like with Andy Warhol and somebody like Babe Paley, who was, uh, who was she? Oh, the wife of William Paley, who built the CBS network. Oh, okay. Uh, so before the black and white ball, no one had ever imagined or, or could ever it attend a formal party with a guest list so widely Catholic that it brought into one room the poet Marianne Moore and Frank Sinatra and Gloria Vanderbilt and Lionel Trilling, Linda Bird Johnson and the Maharani of Jaipur, the Italian princess Luciana Pinatelli, uh, and the documentary filmmaker Albert Mazels. Wow. Anyway, all kinds of people were there. And so I went through reading it. Henry, Harry Belafonte... Ralph and Fanny Ellison, whoever that is. Um, and so the more I read through this whole thing, mm-hmm. it was just saying how nowadays people like Jay-Z and these guys are doing it, or Puffy did one a few years back with Donald Trump invited and things like that. Um, anyway, it was a big, huge deal. The, the more I read through it, the more bored I got. Just yeah. This is about a 
big, big fancy party, party a Truman okay. Capote. That was right after he he got the success of his murder book in What's Cold it? Blood. In Cold Blood, yeah. And so he became a superstar, but yeah. he knew a lot of people from before. He was super so famous. So he invited all of them. It was all this big, huge soiree. And if you look online, it was like the biggest elite of the elite parties in the world. Yeah, that's so pretty cool. That happened in 1966. So look those. If you look up those pictures online, are they crazy? Yeah, and actually, I guess that party ended up being the inspiration for the Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, the book and the movie and everything. Okay. So if you look at that movie, you can look at Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, trailer and just see mm-hmm. the big giant party and that's kind of what it was okay and and oh i think the other thing that was really different about truman capote is that he was out of the closet yeah. in 1966 like which is open yeah. famous gay guy mm-hmm. um, and then thursday december 1st 1966 while visiting residents of east moss point mississippi mm-hmm. to invite them to his church reverend dennis mcdonald encountered a Mrs. Pendergrass, sunbathing nude in her yard, and subsequently reported her to the police, who fined her $50. However, Mrs. Pendergrass appealed the fine, and the court ruled in her favor, noting that she was on her own property, not visible to the public. The judges also questioned why, if the minister was so disturbed by Mrs. Pendergrass's state of undress, he nevertheless remained at her house for 45 minutes. <laughs> There's a court case you can look at. That's funny. On CaseMind.com. Mm, that's pretty good. Yep. And then on Tuesday, December 6th, we're rounding up, 1966, Fred Armisen is born. You asshole. You know who Fred Armisen is? Yes, I know who Fred Armisen is. Oh. And on Monday, December 12th, 1966, the fourth highest grossing film is released, A Man for All Seasons. Are you familiar? Um, I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. Produced by Fred Zinneman, the story of Sir Thomas More, who stood up to King Henry VIII when the king rejected the Roman Catholic Church to obtain a divorce and remarry. That's right. Uh, written by Robert Bolt, starring Paul Schofield, Wendy Hiller, and Robert Shaw. Mm-hmm. Vanessa Redgrave refused to be paid for her cameo role as Anne Boleyn. According to Orson Welles, he had Fred Zinneman removed from the set and directed his scenes himself. Oh, Boom. The trial and ex- execution scenes are based very closely on an eyewitness account published anonymously in the Paris newsletter of August 4th, 1535. Wow. How cool is that? That is cool. And, uh, oh, and they brought in truckloads of styrofoam mm-hmm. to simulate a snowy landscape. As soon as they got it all in there and delivered, real snow began falling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then on Thursday, December 15th, 1966, Walt Disney dies while producing The Jungle Book, the last animated feature under his personal supervision. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you find out if he's cryogenically frozen? I did find out. Disney had been a heavy smoker since World War I. Mm-hmm. He did not use cigarettes with filters, and he had e. smoked a pipe as a young man. In November of 66, he was diagnosed with lung cancer and was treated with cobalt therapy. Oh, God. What I'm, is that even? It's like it's like an early form of... Um, radiation? Uh, re- chemotherapy, yeah. I think. Okay. Radiation, one of the two. Yeah, it's, it's an early form of whatever. On November 30th, he felt unwell, was taken to St. Joseph Hosp- Hospital, where on December 15th, 10 days later, after his 65th birthday, he died of circulatory collapse caused by lung cancer. His remains were cremated two days later 
and his ashes interred at the Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California. Mm-hmm. He was not cryogenically frozen. That is a myth. Ah, urban legend. The release of The Jungle Book and The Happiest Millionaire in 1967 raised the total number of feature films that Disney had been involved to to 81. And then wow. he was also had been working on Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day. I love that was released Winnie in '68. It earned Disney an Academy Award in the short subject cartoon category, and it was awarded to him posthumously. Posthumously, yeah. posthumously. He was an anti-Semite. He was. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, he was shame. terrible anti-Semite. That's awful. You know. Well, after his death, his studios continued to produce live-action films. Po- prolifically Mm -hmm. but largely abandoned animation until the late 1980s after which there was what the New York Times describes as the Disney renaissance Mm -hmm. that began with The Little Mermaid Uh, and then Disney kept doing a lot more of those Disney's plans for the futuristic city of Epcot did not come to fruition it was supposed to be a whole city oh Um, that would have been wild after Disney's death his brother Roy deferred his retirement to take control of the Disney companies and he changed the focus of the project from a town to an attraction. At the inauguration in 1971, Roy dedicated Walt Disney World to his brother. Uh, Can you imagine being a, a Disney? Oh, what's your last name? Disney. Disney. Well, while Walt Disney wasn't frozen, James Bedford became the first human to be cryogenically preserved on January 12th of 1967. Oh, wow. That early. Yep. And then we're rounding out the year, Sunday, December 18th, 1966, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Oh, I love it. Narrated Boris by Karloff. Boris Karloff is shown for the first time on CBS, becoming an annual Christmas tradition. Did you know mm-hmm. that Thurl Ravencroft, Ravenscroft, Thurl Ravenscroft, who sang the song, mm-hmm. is best known as the voice of Tony the Tiger in numerous Frosted Flakes TV oh, commercials? Oh, that makes sense. Thurl was picked to sing these songs because his voice was like an extremely deep, bass or baritone mm-hmm. voice. I love his yep. voice in that. You're a mean one. Yep. Mr. Mr. Grinch, they're great. Mm-hmm. Oh, I missed a movie. The Sand Pebbles? Nope. Was Don't nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> I didn't even look it up or anything. Nope. And then and then Wednesday, December 21st, 1966, Kiefer Sutherland was born. Stop it. December 26th, 1966, the first Kwanzaa is celebrated oh. by Malunga Karinga, the founder of Organization U.S., a black nationalist group, and later chair of Black Studies at California State University, Long Beach, from 1989 to 2002. Mm-hmm. He created this in the aftermath of the Watts riots. Yeah. It's a specifically African-American holiday. He said his goal was to give blacks an alternative to the existing holiday and give blacks an opportunity to celebrate themselves and their history rather than simply imitate the practice of the dominant society. Makes sense to me. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Why should you have to do any of that? Mm-hmm. Um, I think people can be very self, be, be very deprecating of. About other people's. About Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa, yeah. Karenga was active in the black power movement of the 60s and 70s, and he co-founded with Hakeem Jamal the Black Nationalist Group U.S. organization. He was born in Parsonburg, Maryland, to an African-American family, and he studied at L.A. City College and the University of California. During his student years, he involved himself in activism and joined the Congress of Racial Equality. Through his activism, he became involved in violent clashes with the Black Panther Party. In 1971, he was convicted of felonious assault and false imprisonment. 
He was imprisoned in the California men's colony until he received parole in 1975. He received his Ph.D. shortly afterward and became, began a career in academia. And that rounds out the year. Sweet. Except for Saturday, December 31st, 1966, the monkeys take over the number one spot with I'm a Believer. I was going to say that. I'm a Believer. And that ends the year, and I didn't do any toys. No, I didn't either. We covered it. Twister, you know. Twister I talked about the Twister really, for a long probably time. Good. That was the best toy. Yep, that was really the only toy. I mean, they Johnny probably Carson had, and Eva Gabor bone. They probably had some real fucking creepy baby dolls. It seems like the 60s were filled with just horrifyingly creepy baby yeah. dolls that talked and whispered. I will say, when I one time when I had to move my grandparents, my mom's old 60s baby dolls were all in the basement, and they were all creepy as fuck. There's one that whispered. That would be like, I'm going to play with me. Oh, their eyes would blink. And yes. Be creepy. I mean, even even the 70s dolls were creepy. Like my yep. friends' dolls and stuff were all creepy. I mean, back then I didn't think so, but now I'm like, ooh. Definitely think so. They're all haunted, I think. I'm pretty sure. Everything is haunted. That's Something right. about dolls. Like, if you've ever been to a Cupid's restaurant in Ohio. Yes. They have a Cupid, like a naked Cupid doll is, yeah. their, is their mascot. And it's creepy, creepy as hell. Yep. Anyway, thanks for listening, Tom Heads. Yep. And thanks for liking to be called Tom Heads. No, Hans. we're not doing that. But this is the end of another year. 1966 is now over in episode 98. Yes. So we now know for sure our 100th episode will be in, in 1967. 1967. 1967. It's one of the greatest years of all time. And we're almost done with the 60s. And we're going to be on to the 50s. 50s. We're going to start all the way to a whole new time whole period. New era. Soon. Yep. We'll be in our hundreds. We're going to get to episode 100, and that's going to be a very special episode. Everyone has to listen while actively engaged in intercourse. No. That... Yes, it's Come the only on way. Now. No, it's a requirement. I thought everybody just had to have their junk out. Oh, or have your junk out. Yeah. As long as your junk out, I yeah. guess that's fine. Have, have one ball out. Everybody's got to listen with one ball out. One ball is the minimum. One ball minimum. All junk maximum. That's always maximum, babe. Everybody get your junk out. All right. Time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry's in the room. I want to thank everybody for listening. Matt Truman, Ego Trip, we always thank him. Is there anybody else to thank? Yes. Who? Think about it. Do you want to thank Jeff Bezos for always sending no. us things when we order them on Amazon? I don't think anybody needs to thank him. I feel like there's somebody else that told me they were listening that I wanted to thank, but... I don't remember. You can't remember, so shout us out if you're listening. If you're listening, let we us know. know. We want to mention your name. Do, do make up Instagram or do a Twitter or whatever you do, whatever Twitter, your things are. Twitter, Whatever Insta. your things is, Facebook, whatever. Uh, we're not on... Um, we're not on... Uh, we're not on Nextdoor app. That? Maybe we, we should, <laughs> we should, get, on Maybe we should get on the Nextdoor app. Um, warning, there's a there's a person at my, ringing my doorbell. Call the police. There's a human, There's a human interaction. In, in the driveway. Mm. Help. Help. Somebody's walking up my driveway right now. Help. Help. Call oh, police. Call police now. Call police. Somebody delivered a package. Somebody's walking up the At this hour. At, at this hour, you rang my doorbell. <laughs> <laughs> Next door app. Right. Love it. I love you. Peace. Kiss my grip. When you were all alone, no watch tower, a kiss in the sky. Well, I was barely a glimmer in my young daddy's eyes.
Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Samantha, that's a hickey.